So, Carla, I in that scene, Morgan Freeman is eating a pie. Correct. And I don't know. Is it weird if I like the sound of that? Like the sound of <laughs> like Morgan Freeman has a little bit of food in his mouth and he's ta- like it's the Morgan Freeman voice. But like you can tell he's eating a little bit. I, I, I'm a fan. <laughs> okay. Yes, that is weird. Also, do you do know there's a thing called ASMR, right? Where people are super into hearing like sort of soft whispery sounds. Should I like listen to some shows where people <laughs> just like should. snack on food in the background? Apparently. Normally, I don't like the sound of people communicating say, with a mouthful of food, but yeah. it's Morgan Freeman. Okay. Okay. So Morgan Freeman gets passed. But you do Your not. wife apparently doesn't never gets passed. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey, Pennies and Popcorn fans, welcome to today's episode. We're going to be covering one of my favorite movies of all time, The Shawshank Redemption. I also am just crazy for this movie. It is just beautifully done and has a beautiful message and also really ties nicely into financial independence topics. So I think that's going to be a really fun one to kick around today. Yeah, I think so too. And by the way, you're not alone. This is the number one rated movie on IMDb. So the public has spoken. Lots of people love it. It's popular. Although I will say I did notice in rewatching it again for, I don't know, at least the 10th time, there are like no women in this movie. There's like, that murdered lady. None. Yeah, there's the woman who got murdered. There's uh, like a woman in a grocery store. I think there was a bank teller maybe. And a bank teller. Those are the only three women in the film. And I think the wife like barely even speaks. I don't think she even has lines. So there's two women with lines and they're like super minor characters. So this definitely does not pass the Bechtel test. No, not at all. Yeah. All right, before we get into the movie, I think we should give a quick update to our listeners and all you pennies and popcorn fan members out there uh, about the status of our show. It is a new year and we're pretty busy right now. We are pretty busy right now. Well, first of all, Happy New Year, everybody. It is officially 2023, which we're excited. We have a lot of fun stuff going on in the new year. I am starting a new job in just just about a month now, and I'm super excited about that. Um... And we also just have a lot going on in our lives in general. We've got trips coming up. We're planning a small home renovation project. And Pennies and Popcorn is going to be on the back burner potentially for a good while. Yeah, we're going to take an indefinite pause. um, And I think we're pretty sad about it. We've had a lot of fun putting these out every week. And we would love to hear from you. If you want to send us an email while we're not recording anything, you can reach us at penniesandpopcorn at gmail.com and uh, let us know if you enjoyed our episodes and you miss us. Yeah, that would be really great to hear from any of our listeners out there. We know that you guys do exist. So send us a message if you want us to come back uh, soon. Let us know and we will take that into consideration. But yeah, we've got a lot going on and it's an exciting time for us. We have a lot of fun things on the burner. So we're going to put pennies and popcorn on the back burner for a bit. Good call. So The Shawshank Redemption, super popular movie, number one on the IMDb list right now. How do you think it did at the box office? I mean, I would just be shocked if it didn't do really well. It was nominated for Best Picture, has great actors in it. I would be shocked if it didn't do well. 
Uh, it was a total box office bust. No, that's terrible. They made less movie at the bo- less money at the box office than they spent to go make the movie. Uh, it Gosh. came out in September, I think it was, in 1994, the same weekend as Pulp Fiction. Um, it got nominated for seven Oscars, but didn't win any. I think Forrest Gump stole them all that year. I mean, I feel like this movie is better than Forrest Gump. I'm going to put that out there. Yeah, so it's totally surprising, but it has become a huge hit. After it was nominated for the Oscars, it certainly got a little bit more publicity. It did extremely well in video rental sales. I think the movie studio put out over 300,000 copies of the movie for video rentals, which was just sort of unheard of for such a terrible box office performance. And it was very, very popular in that application. I mean, I probably watched it from a blockbuster at some point way back in the day. Well, you know where I watched it? I watched it on TNT. (laughs) Uh, I read that Ted Turner somehow had the rights to the television broadcast copies of the show and sold it to TNT for a very low sum. And so it's one of those movies that you see on TNT all the time, like Jaws and some of the other ones. Well, that's why it doesn't cost them very much to air it. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's a crying shame that it didn't do do better at the box office. But I mean, at least it's getting its due now. I did read that both Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, who are the two stars of the film, get approached all the time with people telling them that it's their favorite movie ever. So I think it's definitely stood the test of time. I can't imagine that anybody feels sad looking back on this. It's a it's an absolute classic film at this point. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, this was the first movie where Morgan Freeman served as a narrator. I saw that. That's so crazy. It, yeah, that's like his thing now. He's known as the narrator guy, right? He narrates tons of movies. I can think of several just off the top of my head that he wasn't even in that he narrated. Uh, War of the Worlds was one for sure. I think uh, some of those... Evan Almighty or Bruce Almighty, something of like all those films. I guess he played God in those two. But yeah, he was a, he's like the narrator. Yeah, he certainly is prolific in roles that require a lot of voiceover type work. And I think America loves him for it. Yeah. I also saw that this is one of Stephen King's two favorite adaptations of his works. The other being Stand By Me, which is also one of my favorite movies of all time. So I think Stephen King and I are basically the same person. We have the same taste. Yeah, and the same skill level, too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I read something really cool about Stephen King while preparing for this episode. So the guy who directed it, whose name is escaping me at the moment, uh, paid Stephen King uh, $5,000 for the rights to the movie. Uh, It was a short story. I think it was called Rita Haywood and... Hayworth. Sorry. Rita Hayworth. Who's Rita Haywood? she's anybody i think i went to elementary school is one of the names of the character in the film there we go that's my excuse anyway rita hayworth and shawshank redemption was the name of a novella like under 100 page story that stephen king wrote and he got a five thousand dollar check for it but he didn't cash it he thought this was going to be a total bust he didn't see how there was any possibility at all of this turning into a, a reasonable film he thought it was going to be the story just didn't make any sense, whereas the director thought it was really obvious how to do it, and he changed it up quite a bit. Uh, so Stephen King kept the check, framed it, and gave it back to the director and said, in case you need bail money, here you go. <laughs> That's um, a cute story. The other thing that I was going to say about Stephen King, though, that is super cool is 
he knew the director and they'd met working on some other project. Stephen King is awesome. He is super into letting new people direct projects about his work or do uh, screenwriting adaptations about his work. If you come to him as a newcomer, I don't know if this is still a policy or, or the way that he still operates, but at least back in the day, his, his rule was if you're somebody new, he'll give you the rights for a dollar for one of his short stories. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, if you're as prolific as Stephen King is, you can probably afford to make those kinds of concessions, right? Because your short stories are just cranking out all the time. Nevertheless, it is still insanely generous and a very, very kind thing for him to do. I've always been a big fan of Stephen King. I read his book on writing, and I've obviously read some of his fiction books too. And he just seems like he's really got his head in the right place. He's, He's a pretty cool dude, I think. So one of my favorite things that I, I do when researching these films is who are the people they considered for the different roles? I always like to look at that. I think it's fascinating. So Tim Robbins, the guy who plays Andy Dufresne, they looked at a wide variety of people. Uh, they offered the role to Tom Cruise, which is funny because he's supposed to be this like, kind of tall guy. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah. um, but Tom Cruise was not interested for such a working with such an inexperienced director. Uh Uh, They were hoping to get Tom Hanks, but he was tied up doing Forrest Gump, which I don't think was a mistake on his part. Um, The guy who did make a mistake was Kevin Costner. They wanted him. Oh, really? But he was busy making super expensive and super terrible Waterworld. (laughs) I'm going to die on that hill. I like Waterworld. I'm like in the 1% of people who like it, but... You, got, you like what you like. I can't change it. But yeah, that does seem interesting. I can picture Kevin Costner in that role. But the Tim Robbins character is supposed to be described as kind of icy and aloof. And I don't think that's Kevin Costner. I have a hard time picturing him pulling that off very effectively. Tim Robbins was the way to go. No I can't question. picture Tom Cruise doing it either. Oh my gosh, my that would have been a travesty. No, 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 no. Can I? How many more times can I say No. It's no. Uh, seven, I think, is before you have to start paying a fee. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that is an interesting factoid. I can see Tom Hanks doing it, but I think it was better for him to save his uh, his Stephen King work for The Green Mile. He was great in The Green Mile. Same director. Yeah, yeah. Also, the second Stephen King adaptation to be nominated for an Oscar. Well, there you go. So, yeah. Okay, should we dig in and do a little bit of a plot summary? Please remind people in case you haven't watched TNT in a little while. Okay, so this is going to give away major plot points of the film. Spoiler alert. But the film is the story of a man named Andy Dufresne who is living a pretty good life. He is very successful in his career. He's working as a banker. This is all set in like the 1940s. And he learns that his wife has been cheating on him. And... Pretty soon after that, the wife and the lover end up dead, and it gets pinned on Andy Dufresne. We later learn that he is innocent of the crime, but nevertheless, he is sentenced to two life sentences in prison, and he is serving them out at Shawshank Prison. And the rest of the movie is kind of his struggles to adapt to life in prison, and ultimately we learn how he escaped and was able to kind of redeem himself and get back out into the world uh, because he truly was innocent of that crime. So there's a lot of twists and turns along the way, but I think that's the high-level plot summary that you need before we move into our clips. 
Okay. So clip number one, let's set the scene here a little bit. As I mentioned, Andy Dufresne was a banker and he's also an incredibly bright guy. He is able to land himself kind of a plum gig getting work outside of the prison. He and a couple of his prison pals are on a special detail where they're tarring the roof of a nearby building. And it's funny, that doesn't sound like the best gig you could ever have. But I imagine when you're cooped up in prison, Mm -hmm. getting out and having access to the outdoors for that extended period, it's probably great. Yeah, and it's a great time of year to be outside. It's like early summer and it's in Maine. So yeah, it probably was a really nice thing for them to get free break free for a while and feel like free men for a bit. So they're on the top of this building and one of the guards starts complaining about something that has happened to him, which doesn't really feel like something that you should be complaining about. So anyway, this lawyer fellow says to me, your brother died a rich man, oil wells and shit, close to a million bucks. A million bucks? Yeah. Fucking incredible how lucky some assholes get. Jeez Louise, you gonna see any of that? 35,000. That's what he left me. Dollars? Yep. Holy shit, that's great. That's like one in the sweepstakes. Isn't it? Dumb shit, what do you think the government's gonna do to me? Take a big wet bite out of my ass is what? Oh yeah, yeah, maybe enough to buy a new car and then what? I gotta pay tax on the car. Repair, maintenance, goddamn kids pestering you to take them for a ride all the time. At the end of the year, you figure the tax wrong, you got to pay them out of your own pocket. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. So there's about eight things I want to talk about in this clip. Let's see if we can get to at least some of them. So first of all, there's this attitude of resentment towards his brother for striking it rich. And I think that's super common. People are often resentful of other people getting good things in life, which doesn't feel like a great way to live your life to me. I think we should try to stay focused on ourselves and be grateful for what we have. Comparing yourself to somebody else is always a bad thing. Even if it's somebody who's farther down the food chain than you are and who seemingly has it a lot worse off, if you try to compare yourself to them and think, oh, I'm so much better than they are, look how terrible they are, that's a bad thing too, right? Then you're going to end up feeling all egotistical and puffed up. Well, I don't know that I agree that it's always a bad thing to compare yourself to other people. I think there's a lot of value that can be gained from analyzing how you're doing relative to how other people are doing, not necessarily on the sphere of of finances, but anything in life. I think seeing other people is one of the best sources of information we have about virtually anything. And we we should never talk down at anyone who's getting information by analyzing how they're doing relative to how someone else is doing. But we should just ridicule the heck out of this guard for his pathetic sour grapes. Yeah. Right? I, I think oh, that's, yeah. it's absurd. I, I think having sour grapes is ridiculous and pathetic. I realize I'm saying that from a position of someone who's had a lot of good fortune in life. So that's, that's no, you're right on a lot of those points. I comparison in general is obviously not an inherently bad thing to do. I think deriving your self-worth by looking at where other people fall around you, that part is just silly and it's always going to lead to a bad result. You're either going to feel inferior or you're going to feel unreasonably superior. And both of those things are just totally irrelevant. But yeah, trying to like make benchmarks of, oh, wow, it's possible to do that. Well, maybe I should strive for that. I mean, things like that are great. 
And I do think looking down the food chain and being grateful for where you are can also be really helpful. But in terms of measuring your own sense of self-worth, that's where it gets really dangerous. And I think the, the guard here, his name is Captain Hadley, by the way, is kind of falling. I mean, he's definitely falling into that trap. So, okay, there's also the minor issue of all of this tax talk that's going on in this clip, right? There's a heck of a lot of it. So he is saying that he had a brother with an estate valued over a million dollars, and he is going to get to take home 35K of that. Yeah, he seems so grouchy about free money. Yep, it's a burden. It's such a burden, Robert. So how much money do you think that's worth in today's dollars? Well... I did look at the amount of money that Andy Dufresne took. It was $370,000 at the very end of the movie and read that that was equivalent to about $3 million today. So $35,000 is probably going to be approaching $300,000, although this was a little bit earlier. So Yeah, this is, so I think the number that you're talking about was all the way into the 60s. The, at this point, we think this scene takes place in 1949, maybe 1950 at the latest. So at that point... This would have been worth about $437,000. That is an insane windfall to somebody. I want that. Who wants that? <laughs> That's such a burden. All I can do is buy a car with that. Okay, first of all, what? What kind of car are you talking about <laughs> buying? There's maybe like a handful of car brands on the market that will even get into that territory. And second of all, like even if it was just enough to buy a free car, be grateful for a free car, right? That's a really big deal in anybody's life. Any of you listeners out there, if you want to give me $437,000, I won't feel like it's a burden. Yeah, yeah. me. I second that. I second that. So he is also complaining about this big wet bite that the IRS is going to take out of his 35K that he's got. And that is just pure nonsense. So in the United States today... And at the time that the movie is set, money that you inherit like that is completely tax-free. Zero to, tax? To the beneficiary. Now, that's a little bit misleading. The estate itself, certainly in 1949, would have had to pay estate taxes on the entire amount of the estate. So at the time, I think the gift, I'm sorry, the estate tax exemption was $60,000, which means if you had an estate valued at over that amount then you're looking at paying some estate tax. So his brother's estate is obviously well over that. He's going to owe some estate tax. But I think the way it would work is that they pay the estate tax. Maybe the estate gets cut down. But let's call it 40%. It gets cut down to $600,000. That's definitely enough to pay the brother his full 35K. Yeah, the lawyer called him and said he's getting $35,000. This is the final determination of the money that's going to be his. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Now, we, we're not going to get deep into the weeds on exactly how the estate tax gets paid in terms of like which beneficiary pays which amount because usually most of the time, it's going to be determined by the instrument itself, by the will or by the trust that's distributing the assets. And remember, usually you don't pay any estate tax. Yes, that's true. As of today, as we're now into 2023, the estate tax exemption for an individual, I think, is $12.9 million. So for a married couple, it's over 25. So we are looking at absurdly high numbers here. 
it is extremely unlikely that the average person out there is going to ever owe any estate tax period. But what is likely is that people will inherit some amount of money. And I think people often wonder, well, forget, it's not about uh, some sort of estate tax that I would have to pay. It's income, right? I have to pay income tax? Yep. The good news there is nope, not at all. Once the estate tax has come in and taken whatever share it's owed, which again, for like 99% of people out there is going to be zero, all of that money that's coming to you after any estate tax is completely tax-free. It is not considered taxable income. That's really amazing. There are some nitpicky little exceptions to this. Like if the estate lingers around long enough that it has taxable income coming in the door and some of that is being distributed to the to the beneficiaries, things like that can get ticky-tacky. So as always, if this applies to you, if you're rich enough to have this apply to you, for heaven's sake, get some professional help. But if a parent dies and gives you $20,000, yeah. it's not income. You exactly. don't have to pay tax on that. And the same thing is true with life insurance policies. If you are the beneficiary of a life insurance policy and get paid out, it's taxed the same way that your uh, car insurance policy is. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there is just no planet on which this guy has had something bad happen to him. It is utterly ridiculous that he's complaining. He is getting $437,000 completely tax-free. It's going to buy him a hell of a lot more than one car. Now, he's going to have to pay sales tax when he purchases a car. Like he would with any purchase? Yeah, but like boo-effing who? I mean, are we supposed to feel sorry for this guy? It's just completely nutty. Well, we're definitely not supposed to feel sorry for this guy. (laughs) He's a horrible person, and he gets his due at the end. Um, What I want to talk about is what's not in the clip. Andy Dufresne, the banker, the murderer banker, (laughs) is up there on the roof working. And uh, he walks over to Hadley and says, hey, I have a solution to help you. Right? He says it in a weird way. But basically he says, if you want to get away with paying no taxes, all you need to do is gift this money to your wife. The IRS will allow you a $60,000 one-time gift tax exemption. And if you give that money to your wife, you won't have to pay any taxes on it whatsoever. Yep. Which Which is nonsense. Utter nonsense. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So, okay, briefly on the gift tax, you have a lifetime exemption amount of that same $12.9 million that you have for the estate tax for gift tax, which makes sense, right? They kind of work hand in hand. The government just wants their bite of that really large estate if you have an estate that big. So you you can't just give it all away just before you die and avoid the estate tax. If you're giving away too much, they're going to take a bite of it before you pass away. So the gift tax exemption amount, however, today is $17,000, which means you don't even have to bother talking to the IRS about having made a gift to somebody unless it's over $17,000 within the course of a year. After that, You have to report it to the IRS, and it starts to chip away at the big estate tax exemption that you have. But there's no such thing as giving a gift to your spouse. It's already hers. It's already yours. Like, you guys own that together for the most part. I mean, things can get complicated in separate property states, but... Well, here's what I think is ridiculous in the first place. If the money is going to be taxed, it's not like giving it away takes that tax burden yeah, away. No, everything about this this <laughs> like little scenario that Andy Dufresne is laying out, just give it to your wife. 
and you'll be able to get away tax-free is complete and utter bullshit. It just doesn't exist. None of it is real. I think this is a plot hole. Okay, so there are two explanations for this. One, it's just cruddy writing. Stephen King didn't know what he was doing or the director didn't know what he was doing. And they just thought like, oh, the audience will never know. We'll just put it in and it'll make Andy sound smart. It'll be great. Or, and I think this is a way, way more fun explanation. Andy Dufresne knows that it's total bullshit. And he just on the fly comes up with this cockamamie story about how to help the guard knowing full well that the guard doesn't need any help. He's never going to pay any taxes. And the guard is an idiot and is never going to figure it out. Exactly. And he comes up with this thing, just, you know, super spur of the moment. And in doing so, tells him, look, I'll just fill out a few papers for you. And then it's all going to be okay. And by promising to help him in this way, he's able to get something in return. He curries favor with the guard And he asks for beers for all of his friends to enjoy as they set up there on the roof in the summer, summer day, and they get to feel like free men for a little bit. So he curries favor with all of the uh, inmates that he's buds with and with the guard all at the same time. And he's able to come up with it that quickly. And I mean, it would work beautifully, right? Like he just fills out some bogus forms and it's maybe even sends it to the wrong address who knows but all the guard is ever going to know is that hey it worked because i never had to pay tax on this money that i inherited from my brother so i think it's pretty darn clever when viewed through that lens yeah plot hole (laughs) all right anyway let's move on to our next clip so this next clip refers to a character named brooks who is the prison librarian he's in for murder. Uh, He's been in prison for decades and he's an old guy and he's just found out that he's going to be released from prison on parole and he's freaking out about it. He just uh, stuck, put a knife or some kind of sharp blade up against Haywood's throat uh, because he he felt like committing another crime was the only way he could could stay in his home, right? To stay in Shawshank Mm -hmm. prison. And this is a discussion of the characters after that event and their concern about him and how this came to pass. Brooks ain't no bug. It's just, just institutionalized. The man's been in here 50 years, Hayward. 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used-up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if he tried. You know what I'm trying to say? But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, and you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. Shit. You can never get like that. Oh, yeah? Say that when you've been here as long as Brooks has. Goddamn right. Goddamn right, says Morgan Freeman. That's a really poignant scene. This movie, it's just so good. There's so many good things about it. So this concept of being institutionalized is something that I think very few movies talk about, but it's something that resonated with so many people, I think, who've never set foot in a prison, but who do have to wake up every Monday morning and go to a job for 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 hours a day and come home and crash at the end of the night and get like a few hours of rest and TV watching in and then get up and do it all over again for the next four days at least. That is certainly not prison and it's crazy to 
for especially for anybody who's never been in prison to compare work to prison but the concept of being so immersed in your daily routine for years and years and decades and decades is something that a lot of people can relate to and if you took away that structure and that routine a lot of people feel lost they feel kind of worthless and kind of alone there's a lot of struggles that people go through when they are moving towards retirement, whether that's early or otherwise, that I think is very, very much in this vein of people adapting to overcome their institutionalization. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the same thing happens even with school, right? You you have a routine every day, every weekday, and then summer happens. And it's a little bit weird. Some people kind of flail about in the summer. They're really unsure how to spend their time. People graduate from a school there's a lot of folks who go on to the next level of school that they don't really have a plan with. They don't really have any specific outcome they're seeking, but it's all they've ever known. It's how they've survived and thrived, and they're going to they're gonna stick with it because it's a lot easier to do that than to move on to something else. But I think work right, can last decades, right? It could be 40, 50 years at a job, and people have the same routine of getting up every morning and going and, and, and working their long day. And then when you take that away, what what's left? I mean, it's a really big question, and I think it's a very personal question that everybody has to answer for themselves. But this gets into the idea that when you do leave behind a job, and I think this is even more important for folks in the FI community who are chasing a super early retirement to think about, is retiring to something instead of from something. So yeah, you may really dislike your job. You really dislike having to hit the alarm clock at like... 6 a.m. every morning and getting up and fighting traffic. Those are the things you know you want to leave behind, but you're going to be left with this big void to fill once those bad things are gone. And if you don't have a plan for how you are going to fill that time, then the removal of the bad things can also just be a removal of all the good things too. And you are left flailing and feeling kind of uncomfortable. And a lot of people struggle with depression So it's not anything to play around with. I think if you are someone who's planning to leave behind the workforce, you've got to be real about what you're going to do instead with that time. So here's a fun question. Robert, we left our jobs in 2019, took off and traveled for a good bit, and then we both missed working and we've gone back to work in different ways. Do you think you are institutionalized? I probably should be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. It's an interesting question, Carla. I I do really appreciate the structure of a work environment, and I'm very fortunate to, to work somewhere that there isn't a lot of structure, right? It's not as though I have to go clock in at some per- certain period and uh, that there's a clear-cut end of my day. I've got responsibilities that I can do in whatever fashion makes sense to get them done. But having that built in on my to-do list in a place where I feel I'm important, I feel like an educated man, an important man, whatever mm-hmm. Morgan Freeman said there. Yeah. Um, I do derive a lot of pleasure from that. I, I think I get a lot of value out of it. And while in 2019, when we went traveling, I didn't feel a loss of value from taking it away. It definitely um, 
was a part of my identity that that wasn't there. I think you are not addicted or dependent on the structure, so to speak. I think you are addicted to the rush of solving problems and helping other people solve problems and just really like digging into meaty, difficult things, which I think is a great thing to be addicted to. I think that's pretty awesome. And I am less addicted to that, but I, I have some of that too. And I think that's a good way to live and a healthy way to live. And I think most people who are successfully early retired, and by that I mean they're not just, as our buddy Carl over at Mile High Five would say, sitting around and eating Cheetos all day, but they're actually enjoying their life and they're really making the most of each day. I think most people like that do have some kind of need to chase challenges and fulfill difficult goals. So I think those are good qualities in life. And a great way to satisfy that need is by having a job that you really enjoy that helps you by presenting you these problems to solve, right? What about you, Carla? So when we came back in 2020, you took on a part-time job that wasn't that many hours. And now in 2023, you're taking on an even bigger new part-time job that's that's going to take up a lot of your time. Did you miss being institutionalized? What Are you institutionalized? Where are you on that front? <laughs> I, I mean, I hope that I'm sort of where you are, but I think I'm a little bit institutionalized. I just was not ready to fully walk away from feeling like you're part of something, feeling like you are people people are relying on you to do something that feels really good to me and being part of something that's for a good mission feels great. So those are the things that I was looking for and I think I got super super lucky in finding a place that has them all. And I'm excited about that. Does it come with some structure? Yeah. Am I happy about that too? Kind of. So yeah, maybe we both are a little bit institutionalized, but I think what's really, really cool about the position that we're in is that we do get to choose these things, right? If we wanted to like, have a really unstructured life, we could, but we've had a little taste of that and thought, you know what? We kind of like doing things that are good for the world and that really present these like meaty, thorny problems for us to solve. And I don't think there's anything bad about that, but reasonable minds can differ. So I'm sure a lot of folks would not choose to do what you and I are doing um, in our same position, but that's okay because we're us and we get to do it. So yeah, that was sort of a non-answer. I guess the answer is I'm a little institutionalized. You should also be. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty clear. Um, The only other thing about this clip that I wanted to comment on is the guy who chimes in and says, that would never happen to me. And the other two people in the group are quick to jump on him and say, hey, man, you can't say that until you've been here as long as Brooks has been here. It's all it's easy. And this guy who's saying that is pretty young looking. He can't possibly have been there for that long. So it's uh, I think it's common, though, for people, again, in the FI community to look at folks who do quit their jobs and then feel regretful, feel lost, feel adrift and say that could never happen to me. But until you're in that position, you don't have the legs to stand on to really make that kind of assessment, right? So I think we should be humble and approach this problem 
with the humility of knowing that it happens to a lot of folks. It makes me think of Tom Brady and his unwillingness to retire here. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about football. <laughs> Isn't he married to Giselle Boonchin? That's all I know about Tom I th- Brady. I think they're getting divorced. Oh, well, see, there you go. Yeah. Looks aren't everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, he's. I think he's 45. Oh, my gosh. And he's still playing professional football? Yeah. Wow. So he's, I mean, that's impressive. He's refusing to hang it up, and his performance has started to decline. And I can picture lots of people coming out of college saying, yeah, I, I'd never put my family through that. That would never happen to me. But it, like Brett Favre for years, he was thinking he was going to retire and then didn't and kept waffling on it. I, I think a pro athlete is a good example of someone who probably can keep going, even though it might be painful or they're a shell of what they used to be, but they're still good enough to keep doing the job. They're they're the perfect example of someone who's been institutionalized with a routine and a set of responsibilities that made them feel important and successful. Yeah. I mean, that really is such an important part of it that comes up in the clip when he talks about Brooks feeling educated and important in here, but nothing out there. And I think that piece of it is also really, really critical for folks. It's easy, easier, I think, of to come up with ways to how you're going to fill your time, but it's a lot harder to come up with how you're going to fill that emotional gap of people don't depend on you anymore and you used to have a more prestigious job title and now that's gone and what are you now so those i think are more difficult questions to wrestle with and there's no magic formula for that i think it comes from the solution comes from figuring out how you're going to fill your time and making sure that as you do that you put things on that list that you know will help make up for those things that are going to go away so like I mean, I assume obviously not all pro football players can become coaches. There just aren't enough positions for that. But I mean, they could certainly drop down a few pegs, right? And coach high school football at the very least, you would think, right? And that's got to be pretty rewarding in its own way. I don't know anything about football. It all sounds terrible to me. So, Well, we won't put you on the spot and ask you to you know, give us any football trivia. We can just move <laughs> on in the movie. And so our next clip, uh, as the movie progresses... Uh, Andy Dufresne, he's helped Hadley with his taxes and he becomes the tax guy for all of the other guards at all the neighboring prisons who come by and play softball every spring. Uh, He does their taxes too. The warden notices this for sure. And the warden decides to do some scheming and a little bit of money making on the side. He kind of does some illegalish looking activity and he's decided to hire Andy or not really hire to force <laughs> yes <laughs> to slave Andy into uh, working for him in the office to help him pull off some of these schemes he's got his fingers in a lot of pies from what I hear two years and a half of it he got scams you haven't even dreamed of kickbacks on his kickbacks it's a river of dirty money running through this place and the problem with having all that money is that sooner or later you're going to have to explain where it came from. Well, that's where I come in. I channel it, filter it, funnel it. Stocks, securities, tax-free municipals. I send that money out into the real world, and when it comes back... Clean as a virgin's honeypot. Cleaner. By the time Norton retires, I'll have made him a millionaire. You know, the funny thing is, on the outside, I was an honest man, straight as an arrow. I had to come to prison to be a crook. So, Carla, I in that scene, Morgan Freeman is eating a pie. Correct. And 
I don't know. Is it weird if I like the sound of that? Like the sound of <laughs> like Morgan Freeman has a little bit of food in his mouth and he's ta- like, it's the Morgan Freeman voice, but like you can tell he's eating a little bit. I, I, I'm a fan. <laughs> okay. Yes, that is weird. Also, you do know there's a thing called ASMR, right? Where people are super into hearing like sort of soft whispery sounds. Should I like listen to some shows where people <laughs> just like should. snack on food in the background? Apparently. Normally I don't like the sound of people communicating with say, a mouthful of food, but yeah. it's Morgan Freeman. Okay. Okay. So Morgan Freeman gets passed. But you do Your not. wife apparently doesn't never gets passed. All right. Um, aside from the sound of Morgan Freeman chewing... There's some fun things going on in this clip. So this, again, just feels to me like utter bullshit. So Andy Dufresne is suggesting that by taking ill-gotten money and purchasing stocks with it, it becomes, quote, clean as a virgin's honeypot, which we're just going to not get into that whole sexist comment, by the way. But... Yeah, what what the hell? Like, is that how money laundering works? Uh, no. If you want to learn how money laundering works, Saul Goodman does a great description of it in Breaking <laughs> Bad. You can go watch Ozark. There's lots of good shows out there that'll teach you all about money laundering. But it's pretty much commingling your dirty money with some clean money where it's hard for someone to identify where that dirty money came from. And it looks like it's a legitimate business income amount. And I don't know how this does it. What Andy Dufresne has done is he's set up all of these accounts in the name of some fictitious person. Randall Stevens. Yeah, Randall Stevens. And the money is just sitting there in Randall's name and bank accounts or in other holdings that are not the wardens. But that doesn't give the warden any ability to easily access those funds or it doesn't answer the questions about wh- where the money came from. I think this is another plot hole. <laughs> okay, here's my, again, counterpoint. It could be that Andy is just that clever. So we know at the end of the film, Andy escapes from prison, and he escapes in style. So all of this money that he's been squirreling away under the name of Randall Stevens, with the warden's full permission, it seems, he goes to the bank, pretends to be Randall Stevens. He has all the proper paperwork to show that he is, and he is able to withdraw like three hundred and seventy-ish thousand dollars, which, as you pointed out earlier, is almost three million at the time. And he flees the country. He buys himself a car and just drives out of the country. So that's pretty darn smart. And it seems to me like he just conned everybody around him, red in the scene temporarily, but really the prison warden, by saying to him, "Oh, look, this is going to be great." I'm going to keep you clean as a whistle by putting all of this dirty money into the name of some other guy who doesn't exist. But yeah, I mean, I guess the problem of it not belonging to the warden and the warden ultimately wanting it could be solved by this fictitious person, like slowly giving him the money over time. So maybe the warden was okay with doing it, but it also sets Andy up beautifully to be able to go pretend to be this fictitious dude at the very end. So I think he's spouting nonsense, knowing full well that it's nonsense, because it suits his purposes, right? It convinces the warden that he can put the money in the name of this fictitious person, and then Andy can pretend to be that fictitious person at the end. Yeah, plot hole. (laughs) I think it makes total sense. I think it's intentional nonsense. That's what I think. Ah, okay. 
So uh, the crimes that the warden is charged with in the film, or that he would have been charged with, he doesn't stick around to find out how that's going to happen, but he was clearly committing crimes, accepting bribes, accepting kickbacks, and both of those things are real criminal offenses in almost, I mean, in every state in the country. So he definitely would have been facing some criminal charges if uh, if he'd stuck around to find out. Yeah, so this is, this is kind of a form of embezzlement, right? Well, so embezzlement is keeping money that has been entrusted to you in some way. I think what the warden was doing was actually a little bit different. He's accepting bribes as a government official, right? He is sort of the keeper of this resource of free labor, and he's accepting bribes to you know, kind of use it in ways that are advantageous to other businessmen in the area. So yeah, he's, uh, he's definitely taking bribes. He's, uh, taking kickbacks as well, which are slight variations of the same thing, but yeah, it's, uh, it's still not good. It's still criminal. Well, he's going to be a millionaire when he retires and then he'll need Andy to help him with the estate tax paperwork. Apparently, apparently, but none of that comes to pass because Andy Dufresne escapes in this like super emotional scene where he breaks free and it's it's just awesome. Also, I have to say the score of this movie by Thomas Newman, which I think was also nominated for an Oscar, is just fantastic. It helps make all of these scenes so much better. So you know that river that he swims out into? Not so fun fact, but the water <laughs> in that is super contaminated and toxic. Oh, and no. Yeah, they... Andy didn't want to get into the water at all. Or not Andy, Tim Robbins was reluctant to go do it. And he definitely didn't want to like go all the way in. A chemist called the water lethal. Good grief. They dammed up the stream and did some chlorination cleanup in it. And then allowed it to flow for the filming of the movie. But yeah, it was, it was bad news. Oh man. Well, I guess Tim Robbins is still around today. So it all worked out in the end, but yeah, that doesn't sound fun. So the director said he was he wanted to film a few additional scenes of him leaving the prison, like making it to some train station, run across a big field, making it to a train station, getting into town. But uh, the movie was already kind of long. Yeah, it is pretty long. That's fair. Well, at the end of this long movie, there is a wonderful sort of wrapping up of all the storylines. So Morgan Freeman's character, Red actually gets out on parole and he remembers from this one also very good scene um, where Andy told him about where exactly he would go if he ever were able to get out. Zewataneo? Yeah, which I think is a fictitious place. I don't think it actually exists. I googled it once because I wanted to go there because it looks beautiful in the movie. Uh, That is actually on St. Croix, I believe. Oh, well, there we go. Then we should go there. Uh, Anyway, Andy had told read that if he ever got out he should try to find him and gave him some instructions on how to do that and what do you know morgan freeman does finally get out on parole and this is the clip of him as he attempts to make his way to andy and offers some musings on what it feels like to be finally free of prison i find i'm so excited i can barely sit still a whole of thought in my head i think it's the excitement only a free man can feel a free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. 
I mean, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know what will. It's such a good scene. The music is beautiful. It's so poetic. And just everything about it just completely gets to me. I also think this clip should be like the poster clip for financial independence. (laughs) Uh, Well, I was going to tell you that they weren't sure if they were going to include the final scene on the beach. It was filmed in St. Croix. Uh, And the studio allowed them to go out there and and do that filming because they thought it was important. The director was iffy on it. And they ran test versions with audiences where I think it just ended with him saying, I hope, but you don't show the, you know, Tim Robbins, uh, Morgan Freeman connection. You just, it's sort of a, you don't know. Interesting. I like it better with more finality. Well, that's how audiences felt. And that's why it worked out that way. Well, there we go. I'm in the majority. But you're right. uh, In the financial independence sector, there is a lot of hope about what the future can look like when you take control. Yeah, it just, I mean, you and I made that leap. We left behind our jobs. We set off to go backpack the Pacific Crest Trail and do some long-term traveling. And that feeling was just indescribably beautiful. It just, it felt full of hope. It was full of nerves too, right? But in a good way, just so much anticipation of everything that lie ahead and we didn't know what exactly was in front of us. And that too was awfully exciting. So I just resonate so deeply with this clip and the feeling of just finally being hopeful about your future, that you've kind of grabbed back control of your life in a way that feels really good and powerful to you. That's a, that's a pretty epic thing to be able to do in life. I thought you just meant when we did the PCT, you hoped you could make it across the border. Uh huh. Well, when we were going across the border by car later on in our travels, I do remember feeling nervous about whether they would let me cross because we always had a little bit of fruit contraband in the back seat, and you're not supposed to transport fruit across country lines, but we always had a little bit of fruit in the back. Well, Carla, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> I did not participate in any of this smuggling operation. Yeah. Um, however, I do think that you're not allowed, to, it's not that you're not allowed to bring any, it's that you have to declare it. Yeah, maybe you're right. I don't know. I guess, I don't know why we didn't then. I'm pretty sure we thought they were going to throw it away. At one point I had some really delicious plums that I was not willing to part with. So maybe that's why. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know what this was. <laughs> I don't know what the statute of limitations is on this kind of thing, but this sounds like a you problem. Mm-hmm. I will face the criminal charges on my own then. So I think this clip, it's also a really nice one to sort of be a send-off for us as we take this indefinite hiatus. I hope this leaves everybody with just this warm, fuzzy feeling of wanting to chase their FI goals in 2023, or if you're already there, of just trying to embrace the hell out of it and have a really, really fantastic year that's filled with all the things you hope for. Yeah, whatever kind of goals you're looking at, whether it's to get healthier and exercise and eat better or sleep better or spend more time with your family or, you know, take more time for yourself and have a better life balance. I hope you get there. Yeah, hope is definitely the theme of the movie. And it's a great theme as we kick off 2023 here. We're filming this on January 2nd. So we're brand spanking new in the new year and we're excited about it so we hope everybody else is equally excited about the new year and has a fantastic one and hopefully we will catch you guys sometime in the future again Alrighty, thanks for listening take care